And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. On today's program, we'll hear an interview with Mary Zimmerman, playwright and director. We'll also talk a little bit about theater in the Bay Area over the next few weeks. And we'll finish up with an excerpt from an interview with the great Mexican-American poet and novelist and activist, Sandra Cisneros. But first, an interview with Mary Zimmerman. Mary Zimmerman is a playwright and director, among her works, Metamorphoses, Arabian Nights, The Odyssey, Argonautica, which is a history of Jason and the Golden Fleece, several other works. Currently, The White Snake, playing through December 30th at Berkeley Rep, and it's a co-production of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Mary Zimmerman, what draws you to adapting mostly ancient or old legends and stories? No, there's something about them that they both have a dazzling surface of adventure and the fantastical, but they also seem to speak to something profound as to what it is to be a person. They have important issues and questions in them about life and death, death, I guess. That's a cliche way of saying it, but they have both a sparkly surface and yet a sense of, po- of poetic death. And because they were not written for the stage, this is important to me. They, they contain things that are very difficult to stage, almost impossible to stage. And it's those challenges of how I'm going to manifest this thing in three dimensions with real people that really intrigues me how to do a sea battle or someone turning into a snake or turning into birds or on a flying carpet or in a camel train or great battles or all of those things that the original tellers of the tale didn't have to worry about because it was contained just in language. But we have image to contend with in space and time. So it's that transformation that I that I love. But I also just think old tales have generally earned their keep. You know, it's not a conspiracy of English teachers. If they weren't interesting, if they didn't have some relevance to our own lives in not dour and somber ways, but witty and colorful and intriguing ways, they, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have stuck around so long. And you've said that they're self-evidently relevant because of that. Because of that. I I feel that that's when people say, well, how is this relevant? I I say it's it's lasted all these years. And so, so many texts have not texts that of their day were the great the great works have not lasted. But certain texts have remained and keep reiterating themselves. And I'm just part of that process, you know. And the White Snake, how did you find out about it and what drew you to making it your next project? You know, it's a unique project for me in a a bunch of ways. It's the only thing I've ever done that was suggested to me by someone else. Bill Roush at Oregon Shakespeare Festival wanted to get me up there and he thought that was a good story for me. And he was right. It's sort of in my wheelhouse. It's romantic and funny and sort of witty and beautiful and sad and not exactly naturalism. So he introduced me to it. And I I knew that type of story where a man, it's a kind of trope in Japanese and Chinese fairy tales that a man is married to a fox spirit or a snake spirit or a bird that, and he doesn't know it. 
in this case, it has the added wonderfulness of they open a pharmacy together, which I think is just a typically great <laughs> prosaic Chinese touch to it. Wait, know? that's in the original oh, legend. Oh, absolutely. They, you know, she she's in disguise. She meets him. They fall in, instantly in love. They marry, and she suggests they open a pharmacy, a drugstore, because she's very good at the healing arts. And also, he's an assistant in a shop, and there's a wonderful line where she says, darling, there's no future in being an assistant. It, to get ahead in this world, you must own your own business, which I really <laughs> like. And I hope I'm not being cliche, but as a kind of entrepreneurial spirit that we associate with Chinese people, or at least I do. It seems even though she's a snake, she has that a business sense. Mary Zimmerman, this began in Oregon. Now, you've said that when you're working on these pieces, you look at the actors and actresses and draw from them. Is this the same cast? Yes, this is entirely the same cast, except for one person didn't come down with us, which is one of the s smaller parts, although it's in an ensemble show. I mean, now that the text is achieved, and from now on as I do it, you know, we will use the text that was made. But you're right, I make my text in the process of rehearsal or in the hours in between rehearsal. I, I write just a day ahead and bring in text every day, every day. And we just figured out that way. Initially, rehearsals are really short and they get longer. My time in between rehearsals gets shorter. At first, it has to be long. But now the script is done. I have made a few little tweaks since we got here, but it is essentially, you know, it's done. And it's it's now it's a regular play, <laughs> like other plays. <laughs> so the performances don't have that much in the way of improvisation. My performances don't have improv. They're, they're absolutely regular plays. I think there's a, a misconception. My plays have no script. By the time we get to technical rehearsals, when you move into theater, there is a script like any other play. It's true that Arabian, both Arabian Nights and The Secret in the Wings, the fairy tale show, both of which I've done out here, contain scenes in which nightly there's improvisation. But the fact that there's improvisation is not improvised. Do you know what I mean? The structure's there. It's set. The play, the script is set. But there's a few open minutes where there is improvisation in both of those shows. But generally speaking, and I wouldn't even use the word improvisation in, in my development. I, I write between two and four in the morning or three and six in the morning and I bring it in. It's the exact process of playwriting, except it's the time frame of my playwriting is set on top of the time frame of rehearsal and staggered with it night after night after night after night. That's the only difference really. And I'm also, I'm not making up the story. I have to structure it sometimes or if I'm choosing from all the myths of Ovid or all of the tales of the Arabian Nights, one of the most difficult things is picking which story to do, to pick a structure of an evening as opposed to the months it takes to read those texts or days or weeks. Whitesnake, on the other hand, although there are multiple versions of it, and we try to pay homage to some of those, it does have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and characters that sustain through that very solidly. It's a more conventionally plotted show compared to something where I'm just drawing from all of fairy tales or all of the Arabian Nights is discreet as a story. It has its self-contained. Arabian Nights was done in the thrust stage. This is done in a proscenium. Was yes. this done in a proscenium up in Ashland? Yes, it was. I mean, that's what makes the transfer, you know, easy. It is more of a proscenium show. And yes, the, the, uh, in Ashland, there's a little bit more of a thrust to their proscenium. Very often you're rebuilding the set. Here it's the actual set. So directing in Berkeley is not that different because it's already been done. 
You know, yes, and we did just close it in Ashland in July. You're right. We're, we only rehearsed a week. We rehearsed a week up in Ashland, and then we brought it down here to Tech In. Now, technically, it is different because in Ashland, we were confined to a rep plot in terms of lights. That is to say, we're sharing the theater with three other shows. So here we're much more free in what we can do through the light. We've also made some improvements in costumes. But, yeah, basically it's a continuation of that run with all of my friends with me and all of us just continuing and moving on with the show. What was the most difficult part of creating the show, you think, this particular show? The way certain plot points had to be accomplished were a little bit difficult, you know, tricky, and I had to write some little scenes that don't necessarily exist in the stories. You know, I was I was intimidated by the sea battle, which happens late in the day and is much illustrated in Chinese art beautifully. And I knew I didn't have the budget or the desire, really, to do it in those realistic, detailed ways. So my little sea battle is quite quick and sort of down and dirty, but it's supposed to be all the spirits of the sea fighting all the spirits of the air. And it's quite colorful and fast, but it's not some wonderfully skilled <laughs> display of martial arts or, or detailed thing. But I think it's quite effective. What you really need to show is this character, this one character drowning. And I think we do that, do that rather well. But it's all done in a kind of graphic, illustrative, imaginative way, not in, obviously not in a realistic way. Mary Zimmerman, have you ever thought about directing film? You know, early on, I made little films for a lot of my shows, and nothing was more engaging, demanding, physically, intellectually, emotionally. You just were exhausted at the end of the day in a really satisfying way. But that's not that's not the route my my life has taken. It's not the aesthetic. I like the challenge of the black box of the theater and how to bring or conjure everything in the world within those limits, as opposed to actually finding, purchasing, building a world and making a simulacrum and, and shooting it and making a simulacrum. I understand that when you shoot something, you're also transforming it. Obviously, it's not the thing itself. But but I like the limitation of that square frame and being able to fill it imaginatively with anything in the world. And most of the techniques I use, you would never use them in film. Film is the it's just it's just the ultimate of, of naturalism and realism. You know, if you see the shadow of a microphone in film, that's such an enormous mistake, whereas in my shows I'm always pointing out, look at what we're doing, look at how we're doing it. It's the, the means of production are visible, and that's what's delightful, and that's what I would call theatricality, the suspension of disbelief. We understand that's not really happening, and yet we allow it to be happening. We allow ourselves to be seeing something that we know is not there. Film works in an entirely different way. I do, you know, like everyone else on Earth, love the beauty of film and the composition of film and all of that and what it can do. Um, but it's just a different route my life has taken. Do you consider when you're working on these pieces those political and social implications we talked about before? I suppose I do. But what I adhere to most strongly is the tale itself and try to let it speak the thing that it is speaking. We've been joking, and it's sort of true, that The White Snake is, in a way, a marriage equality play. <laughs> but I think that that's Phil Rausch's hidden agenda, or not so hidden, in giving it to me. You know, this evil religious figure is constantly trying to break them up and say, men don't marry snakes you know, first of all, the husband doesn't believe she's a snake, but there's a sort of very strict, this is wrong, this is wrong, even though 
Lady Whitesnake is clearly almost a saint. You know, she's such a good figure and so good for him in his life and has done so much for him. And yet um, this figure of authority is always trying to break them up and do everything to interfere because it's not right. It's not moral, you know, on and on. It's an unholy alliance. There's a few lines I have thrown in there that I sort of feel are for Bill. They, they sort of underscore in a final confrontation some of the language that people might use in certain arguments. However, that's not to say, you know, I'm very much against the verb, what did you get from it in terms of art? What did you get? It's acquisitive. It's capitalist sort of thing. It's rather, what is it? What did you experience? What are you feeling? And after that, you know, you're free, of course, to imagine all kinds of things. I guess I would be very disappointed if someone read my plays in a politics with which I don't agree. That would, I would, I would take steps to change it so that it could not be mistaken for that. But I like things that are more than one thing and that children, of course, can come and see the show. And what they're going to focus on is how much they love Whitesnake and her friend Greenie. And they're going to debate which they'd rather be, Greenie or Whitesnake, because they're both so delightful. And it's a sort of female buddy film in a certain way. And those two women are so heroic without ever being an issue or made explicit or conscious or pointed to that they are female they're just absolutely the most appealing characters at the center of this thing it's just it's very beautiful that way i really like that aspect of it mary zimmerman changing the subject slightly well completely there's an election and obama won and one of the issues involved was funding for the arts Uh uh-huh from that perspective, I guess for you and for a lot of people in the arts, the fact that Romney wasn't elected uh-huh. is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, yes. And you know, we I, we ha- I'm from Chicago, and we have we have my theater company has a little connection to the Obamas. Both the girls took classes uh, at our theater company for three or four years, and they came to all our shows and came to all of the girls' shows, too, even in the middle of the primaries. You know, there's these busy lawyers and doctors that were parents of the other kids wouldn't show up, and then there would be Michelle and Barack Obama sitting there, and then the Secret Service on the other side of the theater. I believe that he understands that the arts aren't a piece of cake decoration, that they're the cake itself, that an unornamented life is not a life worth living, and an ornament is an ornament. It's It's vital. I mean, you know, all of us can get steam coming out of our ears about that. I also though know the one person who's very deeply involved in this subject said the opera will always be funded because those those wealthy other people will always want to be able to go to the opera, and that's what's going to save us all. <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but I like to think it. I, you know, I'm also, though, a little bit against, I think in the theater and the other arts, we've fallen into a bit of a trap of, like, the rhetoric of how are we serving our community? How are we serving? What is the purpose? You know, useless beauty is not useless. It's life itself. Nature itself is full. I'm looking out the window of the most abundant, useless, unproductive beauty, and we are part of that. And we need to make room for that in our lives or honestly, our lives are not they're not worth living. And I just feel that really deeply. I also feel that people in the arts are members of the community and not outside of it. And so funding us is is funding the community, if you know what I mean, sort of automatically. Mary Zimmerman, this piece has been working, gestating for several years. Have you become working on something else? Yes, I'm working on the next big thing I'm doing is, believe it or not, 
I'm adapting the Jungle Book, and it's actually Disney's Jungle Book and Kipling's, sort of, for the Goodman Theater in Chicago next spring with all my same design team that everyone here sees me with at Berkeley Rep. And I'm very excited about that. The music is very wonderful. We're doing it in a kind of Indian-inflected way. We did a little workshop. It was extremely exciting. I got to meet Richard Sherman, the co- of the Sherman Brothers um, composer, and that was a great afternoon of my life. So it's all very fun and exciting. Could this wind up being another Disney production on Broadway? You know, I suppose they are invested in in that way. My standard line is about 48 things have to line up exactly for that to happen. And I'm, I also feel I'm doing it for the good people of Chicago. We'll probably tour it to a couple of regional places like I do everything. I would love to bring it here. I, Berkeley is my home away from home in terms of I've done more shows here than anywhere except Chicago. So it's a long process. And who knows? I might do it. You know, I might ruin it and <laughs> be terrible and no one will want to see it. I, I have quite a lot of faith in our music and our musical arrangements of those Sherman Brothers tunes. I daren't even mention the names because then you'll have them in your head for the next 24 hours. They're so catchy, so convulsively um, catchy. And I'm very happy with our set design. But, you know, I have no script, as usual, going in, and I've never adapted from a film before. And then I'm also seeking to combine that a little bit with some of the some of some incidents and so forth from the original Kipling. I did Candide a couple years ago, um, the, the, the Bernstein, Bernstein musical, yes, which I had a great happiness and success with. And I did a new book, and in that I was going back to the Voltaire and and trying to make that more the book, more truer to that. And yet the challenge is that the songs have a certain tonality and carry character and plot with them that is different, of course, at times from the Voltaire. In the terms of the Disney Jungle Book, that is multiplied by a factor of like 30. The, the tone of Kipling's Jungle Book versus Disney's almost have nothing in common except some character names. I mean, Kipling is quite bloody and vengeful, and little Mowgli is a 17-year-old, much more of a Tarzan sort of figure through most of it. You know, I think the story that the movie takes is really only about the first 30 pages of Kipling's Jungle Book. But I do think that there's very useful things that could be interwoven between the two that'll help that'll help it plot wise even. So we'll see. It's a challenge. It's a big challenge. You've been listening to an interview with Mary Zimmerman, director and playwright of The White Snake, now at Berkeley Rep. For more information about The White Snake and about Berkeley Rep, you can go to berkeleyrep.org. The White Snake continues through December 30th. Some other shows playing over the course of the next few weeks in the Bay Area. It's a Wonderful Life, the great Frank Capra film from 1946, is being performed as if it were in a live studio, radio studio, in 1946 over at Marin Theater Company. It's an engaging, funny, and delightful evening of theater. And the character of Mr. Potter, if you listen carefully, he sounds a whole lot like Mitt Romney. Other shows in the Bay Area over the season include... The musical Wozzeck, with music by Tom Waits, performed by Shotgun over at the Ashby Stage in Berkeley. There's also Hedwig and the Angry Inch, a musical at Boxcar in San Francisco. The Boxcar artistic director, Nick Olivero, always does things that are interesting, and he sometimes goes to the edge and sometimes over the edge. 
But Boxcar is an extraordinary theater, and if you haven't discovered it, this is a good time to do so. Also, the Book of Mormon is playing at the Curran. It's a really delightful show, a very funny musical comedy. However, it is not worth scalper prices. So wait till the second, third time, fourth time, or fifth time it shows up. Also at ACT is A Christmas Carol, which is their yearly production. Coming up now, an excerpt from an interview with Sandra Cisneros, Mexican-American poet, novelist and activist and in this segment she talks about immigration and she talks about san antonio her home and other interesting topics sandra cisneros one of the issues that keeps coming up is immigration but from what i understand the uh, flow has turned into primarily a trickle and yet political parties are making hay out of this thing and deporting people for DUIs. You know, when when we had the last election, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but no one wanted to talk about immigration. They did not want to talk about it. And uh, that, to me, was a red flag, that neither party wanted to talk about it. I don't think either party has dealt with it well at all. And so now it's gotten to the point that it has. I think post 9-11, uh, we've seen such a disastrous uh, policies on the border. I live two and a half hours away from the border, and I've seen a lot of changes for the communities there. And it's a very sad situation. I feel like it's a occupied zone, you know, and we're losing a lot of our rights. Uh, both sides of the border are terrified. We're united in being fearful. Both the Mexican population and the U.S. population is united in fear. So you would think that with these two communities united in fear, that we would ask each other, what can we do to make you feel more secure? That would be the question we should be asking. All of the, the country should be asking that in this time of, of global interrelations, don't you think? How can we make you feel more secure? Because we're all afraid. We're living in an age of fear. But I, I think, you know, it's easier to, um, it's easier to, for them to want to build on the fear rather than ease. Yes, that's right. But we have extraordinary human resources we have not tapped. And I wish we would invest the time and money, energy, and creativity that we invest in violence, Pentagon, for example, into uh, peacemakers. We have those resources on the planet. We have people who resolve things peacefully living among us. We, we don't just have to think about people that have passed away. We have those leaders alongside us now. Why don't we create a peace Pentagon where thinkers think of alternatives to war and violence? And I know that sounds crazy, but... That's the only way you're going to arrive at creative solutions by thinking outside the box. And maybe thinking outside the political parties themselves. I do think, think so. I do think so, yes. Uh, how does the, the Mexican drug wars, do they affect San Antonio at all? Yes, I think that uh, it's very sad to see how the businesses on both sides are suffering from uh, the drug wars, communities. That, that border was always porous. You know, people have been going and coming back since, the, since before the Spaniards arrived. <laughs> and now we see communities that have family members on the other side, very frightened, very frightened. People are... Uh, 
not traveling south and people south can't come north. Uh, so I just feel saddened for families, for example, that are divided by that violence. Uh, I think Mexico is suffering so much. Uh, there are parts of Mexico that seem uh, safer than ever. Mexico City, some other towns further south, but that whole border area is under siege. And I think it, that violence has affected us uh, in the form of the consumption of drugs. Uh, the sale of arms creates the violence over there. And our consumption of drugs creates the crazy state that we're living in where violence can erupt at any moment. So what what can we do about it? I mean, my thought is the proliferation of guns, for one thing, should be stopped. Yes. But... You know, we're in a country that no one, because of fear of the NRA, is willing to say, hey, you know, it's not Second Amendment. <laughs> you know, these are killing machines. That's right. That's right. I think it's a a, a relationship uh, that needs to be resolved because it's so interconnected. It needs to be resolved with both countries and with both countries desiring to create peace. And that would also include finally dealing with the drug laws I feel very sad about it because you know we who live close to the border we see how it affects the families close up we know about that violence and in many people who are not involved with drugs who are just everyday people are affected and victimized by that violence you know you only have to go to Juarez to witness uh, how those murders are still going on how that violence is still going on well when when you're looking at our political situation and the future do you offer people advice? I mean, do you... I mean, you know, what? Richard, I felt when I turned 40 that with all the attention, with the microphones put in front of me, with the media listening, that I had a responsibility to be wiser than my years. So I made a intention at 40 to become smarter and wiser. So I don't have all the answers. I wish I was the Dalai Lama. So what I've tried to do is put the intention to become smarter and wiser. I have to be the ambassador of everything, of issues I'm not that well informed on and I'm learning a lot by reading teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh, Pema Chodron they teach me because I feel I have a responsibility to the communities that I speak to Well, here, here's a question that's I don't know if there's any way to answer it I have a lot of Jewish Buddhist friends but you're, you grew up I guess in a Catholic environment I did. how do you think your Catholicism and your Buddhism match up well you know the Catholicism believes in the Virgen de Guadalupe the mother of God is worshipped especially in Latin America but uh, I find her uh, very empowering I find that the Virgen de Guadalupe allowed me to come back to parts of my uh, upbringing that I had disregarded that I'd walked away from. Uh, my family is from the uh, neighborhood, the very, the very uh, district where the Virgin of Guadalupe appeared. That's where I have roots in that neighborhood in Mexico City. So she's a personal icon, not just a cultural icon to me. I used to play on the little hill where she appeared. So I feel that uh, I was raised somewhat of a Catholic, but with very liberal parents and I've had to find my spirituality I've been looking for it since I was a child and I would find it in pieces of art and in music and in flowers and trees and now I've made full circle and come back <laughs> to finding God in clouds and flowers and trees and to me the Virgen de Guadalupe is just 
a vessel for me to recognize my own God within myself. I don't feel that she's God. She's a mirror for me to find God in myself. You've been listening to an excerpt from an interview with Sandra Cisneros, whose latest book is Have You Seen Marie? And again, The White Snake is at Berkeley Rep through December 30th. For more information, you can go to berkeleyrep.org. Wozak from Shotgun Players at the Ashby Stage is through January 13th. You can get more information at shotgunplayers.org. Hedwig and the Angry Inch is playing through December 30th at Boxcar. That's boxcartheater.org. And finally, It's a Wonderful Life is playing through December 23rd at Marin Theater Company. That's marintheater.org. For more information about this program, you can go to bookwaves.com. And I'd love to hear from people. I'm Rich Walensky on Open Book. KPFA listener supporters, the fun drive has come to an end. Thanks to all who contributed to KPFA. This is what keeps us going strong. From phone room volunteers and food donors to listeners who pledge their support, you all ensure the longevity and effectiveness of KPFA. We can't do it without you. Please remember to send in your pledges. Don't forget, there are many ways to support KPFA. First and foremost, please promote and recommend KPFA to family and friends whenever you can. You may also donate securely online at kpfa.org and you can look us up on facebook myspace Flickr, and follow kpfa on twitter you can even send snail mail to 1929 martin luther king way berkeley california 94704 please continue to support your free speech community radio station any way you can keep kpfa alive thank you